this morning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, we read about the most well-known verse among those in our age. This is the favorite verse of secularists and those who are practicing sin. Uh, At one time, the most well-known verse in the Scripture was John 3.16. Now the most well-known verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says a lot about where we are as a people. No verse has been more abused in our time than this one. Uh, the common interpretation most people give to Matthew 7, verse 1 is, Thou shalt not say that what I'm doing is sin, and leave it at that. In other words, you let me act how I want to act, and don't say anything bad or else you are judging. But that is not what Jesus is saying in this passage, and I think we all would understand that that's not what he's saying. Jesus does not give sinners a crutch on which to sin. He does not say, here you go, continue the way you are. It's commonly said that Jesus takes us as we are, and that is true. He does not demand that we perform anything before his love is set upon us. However, he does not leave us where we are either. He takes us and He molds us and fashions us to please and to conform to Himself. The passage contains a warning, but this warning is not against calling sin what it is. Sin. Now, another danger in interpreting this passage comes from fundamentalists, among whom I would consider myself properly considered. And that is the danger of only saying what this passage is not talking about. For example... What I just said, judge not that you not be judged, and I said that this is not a command that keeps us from calling sin, sin, and then launch into a long explanation of all the different places where we are told to condemn sin, and that be the end of it. So we can't do that either. Instead of talking about what this verse doesn't mean, we need to know what it does mean. It's not only this verse, but the entire passage. What do these verses mean? Why does Jesus say them at the particular time and place that he did in his sermon because he's speaking to those who are the covenant people, those who love God, those who are faithful to him, or at least they've been under the terms of the old covenant. Many have, and many of them are followers of him. They're at the least listening to what Jesus is saying because they believe that he is saying something different than what they have heard from others. They were people who knew the commands of God. They understood what the Lord had said in the Old Testament. So here, after speaking of the things that we should do in Matthew chapter 5, the type of heart that we should have, how we should not be angry and bitter, how we should not lust, how we should not swear falsely or give our word unnecessarily, and then how we should love our enemies, how we should give of our money, how we should pray, how we should fast, and then how we should not allow greed to overtake us. He's established these things, so then he comes to what some of us would say is a total different message. And that message is now he's talking about judging. Jesus knew the human heart better than any of us ever will. There are people who are very righteous. They live up to the standards. They know what the commands are. 
and they follow them. And they are some, some of the most obnoxious people on this earth. Not all who follow the commands, but there are some who are so precise and so nitpicking in the way that they understand things, everything must be exactly to their specifications. And they don't violate their own standards. They don't violate the Ten Commandments. They let you know that they don't. And then they let you know the three-foot list of extra rules that they follow that keep them from violating those Ten Commandments. And then they say, if you want to live godly also, you will do this. Not exactly the type of person you want to hang out with. Of course, probably not the type of person who would hang out with you anyway. Certainly, I would not want that person with myself. In this passage, we read of the command given by our Lord. Then he gives a reason behind the command. He gives an illustration of his command. And finally, he gives a comparison of those who break this command. So first of all, the command itself. Judge not that ye be not judged. We know Jesus was not condemning the act of determining right from wrong. When we think of judging, we a lot of times think of a person with a very narrow face, pale, sharp nose, who stares down at everyone with a long, bony finger pointing out. But this is not what true and righteous biblical judgment is. David prayed in Psalm 7. He prayed in Psalm 43, as we read this morning, for God to judge him. Paul in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, said that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Judging is an act that is first and foremost God's. It belongs to Him. He is the one who is the judge. But, just be, as He is the judge, this judgment means that He is distinguishing right from wrong. Not that He is bringing condemnation on everyone. Now, he could. If he were to mark iniquity, as David said, who could stand? But, the Lord's judgment is a pure and holy judgment. He judges us not by invisible standards that we don't know, but by His revealed standards given to us in His Word. This is God's judgment. And we must be careful when we are called to distinguish right from wrong, that we do so in a righteous way. When we see a person committing what the Bible calls sin, we should call that sin. It's necessary. We, we, we can read this all throughout Scripture when Paul observed Peter not sitting with a certain group of people at the table. He confronted him openly. Paul saw sin, and he made it clear to the entire church that it was sin. The prophets judged Israel when they sinned. They called forth God's condemnation on the sinful acts that they were committing. Jesus condemned the unfaithful Jews for not living by God's standards. He condemned the self-righteousness of many of the Pharisees. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, and later on in Acts chapter 4, he condemned the sin of those who opposed and who crucified the Lord. Peter also judged Simon the sorcerer 
when he said, you're in the gall of bitterness. Now, these are New Testament examples mostly, but then if we look at the Old Testament, you can just, you could look at time after time after time when men are told that they are in sin and they should repent. Now, I've heard some excuse what is, or excuse Christians today from calling sin what it is because they say, well, you know, that's Jesus who said that. Or those are apostles or elders who said that. Or those are prophets who said that. And I'm not any of those things. And I'll respond by saying, if we cannot follow the example, if the examples left to us are all beyond our reach because they were men and filled with the Spirit of God, if they're not our examples, who do we look to for examples? I mean, you could say the same thing about the Great Commission, and some do. You could say, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you know, the Great Commission, there are some who say, well, Jesus was only giving that to a select group and it, doesn't, and it no longer applies to us today because it was only to those. I mean, you can take this to absurd length if you want to. So no, we have a responsibility to distinguish right from wrong. And when I say distinguish, that doesn't mean that you immediately are to go and get in the face of someone that you see is doing something that is wrong and say, do you know you are in straight up disobedience to God and there's going to be some serious judgment? That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that we cannot waffle on our responsibility to determine right from wrong. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there... Them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I which thing I hate. Repent or else repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Then skip down, uh, the next church he speaks of is the church at Thyatira. And he said in verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, and to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and that I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now we could read on in this letter to the churches. Now when he says to the angel of the churches, he's referring to the one who is the elder or the minister. Okay? He's writing a letter to the church saying, look, you're putting up with things that you have no business putting up with. So there is a need to call sin, sin. And to condemn sin. And the Lord Himself was upset with the churches because they were allowing sin to persist in their midst. 
Paul, and we won't read this, but Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he spoke to the church and said, you need to be acting on this man who is committing incest with his stepmom. He said, it's commonly named among you. In other words, this is something that you, you know about, it's understood, it's talked about, but nobody's doing anything about it. That needs to be taken care of. He said, you need to turn him over to Satan. All of these things are commands to the church. So there is a place for this. Okay, so we've established that there is a place for judging in the biblical way. But when we judge it still in the right way, it must be with the right spirit. It must be with the spirit that is distraught over sin, not with a spirit of anger or frustration or irritation or self-righteousness, which we'll look at in a few minutes. So when Jesus told His followers not to judge, He was warning them of a dangerous sin that lies in the heart of all Christians. It's something that is at least at the root. Whether or not you display it, hopefully you don't. But it is a sin that is you are capable of committing, and that is the sin of pride. We like establishing high standards for other people. That comes really easy to us. It boosts our pride when other people don't match our standards. It makes us feel better. We like it. When, well, when they don't do what we think they should do, we can say, see, I'm... I'm better off. We may, we may not even say those things verbally, but that is in our heart. We justify ourselves because others don't match our own standards. Our flesh likes to cut down other people. Even if it's just inside, you know, in, in your heart, you don't say anything about it. We like to cut down other people. We like pointing out the flaws, focusing on the flaws of others because... If we're honest, we have a lot of our own. And it's not nearly as enjoyable to think about our own. I mean, we'd admit we have our own, but it's a whole lot more fun, in a weird sort of way, to think about the flaws of others. And at times even to gossip about the flaws of others. There are three ways that we violate this command to judge not, that we be not judged. First of all, we set up extra-biblical standards and expect others to follow them. We see this in Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 7 verses 2 through 6 and it said and when they that is the Pharisees saw some of Jesus disciples eat bread with the file that is to say unwashed hands they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews except they washed their hands oft eat oft eat not holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market except they wash they eat not and many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And he answered unto them and said, Well, hath Isaiah the prophet Isaiah prophesied of you, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We establish standards that the Lord doesn't have. Now, none of us, I think, have biblical standards of 
having to wash your pots and pans and cups certain amount. We do have others, though. Um, for example, have you ever been to see an R-rated movie? If you do, that's sin. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying that's a, an extra-biblical standard. I mean, obviously, if it has the R there, that's, that automatically makes, makes it wrong and contradictory to God's commands. Do you have a chapter and verse for that? Well, give no appearance of evil. And that's held. Now, am I saying that it's wrong if you yourself choose not to go see any movie with an R rating? No. If that's a standard that you have for yourself, that's fine. However, if you condemn other people because, or just outright, because they go see something that you don't necessarily understand, then that's an extra biblical standard. Okay, well, what's the other side of that? Is it wrong to ever talk with someone about the fact that they went to see a very trashy, very explicit, and very blatantly sinful movie? No, that has a place too. And if someone, if, if a brother or sister is watching things, putting things into their mind and into their heart that depict sin openly, and they make a habit of doing that, I'm not saying it, there should be a rush to condemnation, but there should at least be discussion. So we can establish extra-biblical standards and expect others to follow them. And that was what Paul was talking about to the church at Rome when he's talking about the things that they eat and drink. saying, you're eating and drinking, and you're condemning other people for eating and drinking things that you don't want to, that you think are wrong. Don't do that. There are some who are weak, and there's certain things they can't handle. There are others who are stronger, who can't handle certain things. The problem, Paul said, is in the heart. And that's something we must be careful of, is not to condemn things that are done outwardly without actually knowing why the person is doing it. Another example. This is a hot-button topic for some. But uh, tattoos. Now, is tattooing of itself clearly, without question, a sin? I do not see a clear-cut biblical case for saying that it's sin outright. Okay? On the other hand, why is tattooing such a big thing right now? Well, I can say in large part it's not because people love the Lord. And even those who, in majority, uh, again, I'm not saying if, if you have ever had one or if you have a friend that has one that you must cut off that friendship right now because that's just, that, that person is of the devil. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that I have yet to encounter a person when discussing the issue who could present anything other than cultural conformity or rebellion at the heart of their reasoning for getting a tattoo. I'm sure you say, oh, he stepped on it now because I know somebody who they did it. They have an I love Jesus tattoo. I know, I saw it. I know their heart. I know they didn't do it for the... And you may know that person and you may know their heart better than they and the Lord do. That's fine. But I'm saying that even though some things are not overtly sinful, when we do things to conform to the standards of the world or to display our unique identity by being like everybody else, then we are not conforming to the wisdom of God. I'm sure we can discuss this in more detail later. A second way that we violate this command 
is that we demand others reach standards that we ourselves will not reach. We demand standards of others that we will not reach. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. Jesus said, referring again to the Pharisees, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. What do they do? They put these extremely heavy demands on other people, which they won't even bother to conform to themselves. They expect other people to do all these great things. That's not a problem. We have to be careful of that, whether we are parents, whether we... No matter what, we have to be careful to not establish unholy standards to establish things that we ourselves can't do. You know, there are some good things. There are some biblical things that we can demand of other people. You know, for example, how often, brother, do you fast? Well, I've not fasted in a little while. Well, you know, Scripture says, when ye fast, with the expectation that you will fast. That I mean, that that is something that you should be doing. How long is your prayer time every day? About... Ten minutes. You know, godly people will pray for a lot longer than that. How about your Bible reading? How's that going? Um, well, I'm, I'm honestly about four months behind everybody else in their Bible reading. Or I've read a, a couple of pages out of the Our Daily Bread Daily Devotional. That, that's, that's not good. That you know, you're going to be devil meat pretty soon unless that unless that gets fixed. Now, are those good things? Scripture reading, yes. Prayer, yes. Fasting, yes. All those are good things to do. However, when we make them the standard of godliness and we put and we make them a burden on other people that unless they are conforming to it, they are not spiritual, then we are establishing something which if we compared it to if we compared what they do to what we do, we would also be just as unspiritual. We have excuses for why we can't do the things that we expect of others. Now again, those are good things. And we should exhort and encourage one another to engage in Scripture reading, to pray, to engage in spiritual disciplines. All those are good and righteous things, but not don't turn the commands of God into a club with which we beat down the brethren. Number three, we condemn people in unrighteous anger rather than a spirit of meekness. We condemn them in unrighteous anger rather than reproving them in a spirit of meekness. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. How do you do it? You do it in a spirit of meekness. You approach in love. And when we see sin, even if it is a standard that we ourselves are conforming to and it's a standard that's clearly biblical, we go in saying, I'm going to clean this up. And we take a baseball bat to clean it up. Rebuke is biblical. When someone is in sin or someone is at least even okay with sin, they're in the process of searing their conscience. And that should be approached. But it must be approached in the right and holy way, not in a spirit of anger, not in a spirit of pride. Because Paul said you must consider yourself lest you also be tempted. We all can fall. 
And we must remember whenever we approach someone that I too can fall. But we cannot let the fact that I too can fall be a reason for not confronting sin. All of these are a result of our all these three things that I mentioned, three ways that we judge in the wrong way, are a result of seeing ourselves in a better or a higher light than we actually are. We look down on other people and judge them for their obvious weaknesses. But unless they are sinning, for me, in many cases, against God's commands, we're the ones with the problem, not them. The only, our only standard for confronting sin must be the Word of God. So we're given a command, then we're given a reason for the command in verse 2. He said, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Jesus said that the standard of judgment that we use, and this is, this is motivation to not judge, the standard that we use, that we use will be the same standard that is measured and that is used on us. And when we appropriate an ungodly or an extra-biblical standard, in the end, we will be the ones harmed. It's kind of like the person who uh, decided he was going to poison someone he was meeting with. So he had two drinks. He poured poison in one of them. Then when he got back and started sitting with a person, he got so deeply ingrained in conversation, he forgot which one was poison and drank the wrong drink. You've all seen that type of thing happen before on TV or you've read a story about it. Well, that is one way that uh, a standard that you use on someone else is actually going to come back to you. We're told several times in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes that the one who tries to roll a stone on someone will have the stone rolled back on him. What you use for others will be used back to you. Whatever measure or pattern you use, that is how that is the standard that you're held to. Kind of like a man who was going to be tried for stealing. And he was told by the judge that he would be tried before a jury of his peers. And he got down on his knees and begged the judge. He said, please, I don't want to be tried by a bunch of thieves. Well, he understood the point. That the standards that you hold, the way that you act, that's, that's what will come back to you. Now, there's always a temptation to bring out grids of our own making. Our heart loves making extra standards, extra laws. Because the grace involved in the gospel is too abundant. It's too much for us. It's like trying to drink water standing under Nakalula Falls when it's at, you know, when it's full. We can't handle that. So we instead have to create, if we're not content to just live submitted to the grace of God, we have to make other standards. We have to make other laws because it's too much. We, we don't like the freedom. And we certainly don't like other people having freedom because when other people have freedom, they will in turn do things back to us that they just were exercising a little bit too much freedom right there and they shouldn't do that. And then you're expected to forgive as you've also been forgiven and we can't have that. So instead, I'm going to have these standards that they have obviously violated in what they've done, so that I will have a cause of offense. Jesus said if you do that, you are setting up your own judgment tribunal. You are creating laws that you cannot conform to. Instead, we must view others with patience and love and grace. Ephesians 4.32, Paul exhorts, Be kind one to another. 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So, as I mean, we teach that, and we are taught that from the time we're young children, but it doesn't stop just because you get to be an adult. And being kind and forgiving, many times as an, for an adult, is translated to be nice and only talk about that person when they're not around. But that's not it. Being kind is, stems from the root of the grace of God. Being forgiving comes from the grace of God. That's the only way we can be forgiven. That's the only way that we can keep from establishing these judgment standards that are contrary to the Word. So then Jesus gives an illustration of judging others. Verses 3 through 5. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite? First cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Jesus brings this home by comparing it to finding, seeing a splinter in your brother's eye when you have a two-by-four or a pole coming out of yours. Now, don't ask me how someone could have a pole coming out of their eye, okay? I, I can't tell you that. I don't think Jesus was trying to use pure logic here to make his point, though. He was using an illustration to say, when you have something that is just bulging out, that is obvious to everyone, and you want to try to go fix someone who has something that is a minute speck compared to what you have, what are you thinking? Yet... Jesus, again, knew the heart of people who love God. He knew that when we love God, we establish and we seek to follow His standards. And when we follow the standards of God, we automatically have in the flesh an elevated sense of our own importance and of our own obedience. And that is sin. It's pride. It has no place. Those who judge in this way have three problems, Jesus said. First of all, they see other sins well before they see their own. This man has a pole sticking out of his eye, but he can't see the pole. All he can see is a sliver in his brother's eye. It's kind of like I had a student years ago who he, he talked about, and this young man came to school purposely, knew what he was doing, and he, he was not poor monetarily. But he came dressed in very shabby clothes just because he was—he didn't feel like getting dressed. Didn't take a shower. His hair looked terrible. And he complained about how ugly everybody else looked that day. Now, it was crazy. And, and even the other uh, other kids said, what are you talking about? Did, did, you look, did you look in the mirror before? He said, oh, I didn't have to. There you go. We don't see the need many times to look into what James calls the perfect law of liberty. Another problem that Jesus speaks of in, in this illustration is that the people with logs coming out of their own eye, don't, they want to fix other people's sins before they fix their own. Even the ones who understand that they have a sin problem, they don't want to deal with it. Why? It's a lot easier to try to go after a speck, to talk about someone else's speck, and to try to remove it. Now, if a person has a beam sticking out of their own eye, chances are they're not going to be very gentle and delicate when they're trying to go after the speck that is in someone else's eye. Kind of like the person, or the, the comic that I saw one time, that, that there's a fly on a man's head, and then his buddy has got a hatchet, and he says, Stand still, I've almost got him. 
When a person is approaching another who has a speck, when that person has a beam coming out, it's probably not going to be a very gentle, precise thing. Kind of like you never want to be in a surgery center where you hear a chainsaw start up. We don't want that. So we should not be that person. And number three, and this is really another way of saying what I've already said, these, the person with a beam out of his own eye just doesn't want to deal with his own sin. We use anything as a distraction to avoid thinking about his own sin. So, again, it does not mean that there's no place for reproof. Reproof is called for in the body. However, there are some people who think that their spiritual gift is that of rebuke. You know, that, that, that's what the Lord has called me to do, to rebuke everyone. Who, and I've not seen that rebuke is a spiritual gift in Scripture. Something we're called to, but it should be rare and when it, again, is from God's Word. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives an unlikely comparison. Verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Jesus compares those who judge to dogs. I'll admit, on first glance, this verse seems out of place for this passage. Why does Jesus say, after he had talked about not judging people, don't give that which is holy to dogs? Because those who judge are like wild dogs. They tear people apart. They bite and devour one another. They seek to make a person less, to tear that person down. Now, these were actions that were attributed, at least literally, the actions of a dog were attributed to uh, Gentiles at the time. Gentiles were called dogs. And when you think of a dog, uh, most of us, what we think of, you know, friendly rover at home, you know, just comes crawling in your lap and you pet him and everything and he's house trained, you let him outside every now and then, you know, he gets in your lap and makes sad eyes at you and all that stuff and you feed him, take him out on a walk, you know, you're just really good friends. Those are not the dogs that were around in Jesus' time. Uh, Think of something like uh, a coyote, part coyote, part vulture, okay? Dogs were scavengers in this period. They would come and they would eat dead stuff. We see that even in Scripture in places like where Jezebel, when she died, she was cast off the very top portion of her home, and before the guy could even get down to where she was to clean her up, the dogs had already eaten everything except her skull and and a few other parts of her bones, and that was it. We know that in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, dogs were licking the sores of Lazarus. Now, again, uh, it's more pleasant to think about, uh, you know, uh, again, Fido being all comforting and everything, but chances are that these dogs who are licking the sores of a poor man aren't doing so just because they're friendly. They're, they're, they're getting kind of a first taste. Well, Jesus said that we should not be like dogs. We should not be those who, as Paul said, and I mentioned earlier in Galatians chapter 5, that bite and devour one another. Instead, we should love our neighbors. And part of loving is not being cantankerous and not judging those who are walking in something that we don't understand or that we think they shouldn't do, whereas God's Word doesn't actually say that they shouldn't do whatever it is that they're doing. 
The, those who are biting and devouring, Jesus said, don't. Really, if someone, if that is their way of life, that person does not deserve to enjoy the things that are holy. Just like you don't give the best things to the pagan Gentiles. Those are also swine, unclean animals. You don't give anything to them. So are those who devour, who bite, who are raging dogs. You don't give those things that are holy to them either. So there is Jesus, after saying, don't judge. Think about this. He just said, don't judge. He turns around and says, in a sense, judge, reprove, or don't give the good things to those who are judgmental. Now, how do we escape being judgmental? Real easy. At least the things are real easy. It's hard to do. Confess your pride to God. Pride is the root of this. Pride is where all sinful judgment starts. So confess your pride to God. Submit your desire to be seen as superior to God. We all want to think of ourselves better than we should. You have to give that up. Crucify it. Kill it. And love people not because you agree with everything that they do or even you like everything that they do, but because they are made in the image of God. And if they're your brother or your sister, love them because they belong to the King. In doing that, we will be preserved through grace. And because the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ to us, He will keep us from walking in judgment in this way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You that You free us from this sin and all sin. That even though we can't escape it, You have granted us to escape. I pray now that You would instruct us and that You would cause us to meditate on Your goodness and these commands now in Jesus' name. Amen.